Now we come to that time where we have the privilege together of giving our attention to God's Word. So I ask you once again to open your Bibles and join me in Revelation chapter 2. This morning as we take up Revelation chapter 2, we will be looking at the second of the seven churches, and that is the church at Smyrna, which is verses 8 to 11 in chapter 2. Listen as I read God's Word, then we will pray and really dig into this together. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Our wonderful, great, and glorious God, we come to you as we open your word because we are dependent upon you. It is your word. It is the revelation of your truth. It exposes us to your mind and your heart and your wisdom. Lord, and we just would pray at this time as we consider this passage of Scripture that you would be pleased to teach us in our inner man by your Spirit. God, as always, I would ask that you would grant for me to speak faithfully and clearly your word. Lord, that you would give all of your people who you've gathered this morning ears to hear. But further, Lord, we pray that as we hear these things, that you would uh, really cultivate these things into our hearts, uh, the way that we think, the way that we worship, the way that we live. Lord, our desire is that we would honor the one who has given us life and hope and everything. Be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here as we come to the second church, I want to just uh, remind us of the first church the first church that we looked at last week was the church at Ephesus. And in the great encouragement and commendation that was given to them, we, we were able to see that a church can be faithful, doctrinally committed to not let false teaching seep in, to not let wrong teachers come in, and to endure with commitment to truth. But still in the midst of a relentless commitment to to truth, there can be a loss of the first love. And suddenly it can be more about our doctrine than our deliverer. More about the, the, the truths that we hold to than about the one who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is to be and should never be anything that supplants the centrality of the grace of God that has been given us in Christ Jesus so that all we would do would be done for the sake of his name but done in love 
to him, in gratitude to him, experiences and expression in love towards one another. We can't let the compromises that take place in the world regarding truth get us so up in arms and so active in the defense of truth that we forget or forsake the high priority to love the Lord our God above all else and our neighbor as himself. You know, and, and so now some would say, well, if we're going to err, we should err on this side. But I would generally say this, if you know in advance, choose not to err. Don't err on the side of loving but not maintaining truth. Don't err on the side of maintaining truth with diligence, but not in a way that's also loving. We want to speak the truth in love. We want to deliver the communication of God's message with perseverance, with patience in teaching, in hopes that God would deliver people from the confusion and the distraction and the wrong ideas that are theirs. Now, as we come to the, so the church in Ephesus, let us not forget, they were commended for not compromising in the least when it came to doctrine, commended for fighting for it and protecting it. So that is commendable. We need to cling to that which is commendable while committing ourselves to the things that they also left off. Now, when we come today, in Revelation or chapter 2, verse 8 and following to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the two of the seven churches that is commended with no rebuke. There is nothing that is negative said about that church. And that's a glorious thing when you think about it. Because the one who is doing the, se the speaking to all of these churches is Christ himself the scriptures tell us concerning this christ each one of these letters begins and we saw it last week with that that sentence that says this i know i know i know there is nothing that is hidden from him if we had interviewed the church at ephesus they probably would not have recognized their lack of love or their loss of love they would have been co convinced that their commitment to truth was the outflow of their love and not realize that somewhere along the way other priorities and other reasons can supplant that in Smyrna nothing negative is said of them but I want to note this nothing negative is said of the church at Smyrna at this present time is it possible that they would have been facing problems and compromises five years later, ten years later? Surely it is possible. But what we want to do is look at what God says to the churches here, and particularly today, the church in Smyrna, and just receive some encouragement from that. The first thing I want us to do as we take it up in verse uh, 8 is look at the place and the person expressed. Now, the place is Smyrna. Now, generally speaking, if I was to say to most people, tell me about Smyrna, we would probably respond by saying, I've never met her, or, or, or something like that, because we don't know uh, 
maybe we won't place the name or maybe we don't know much about the city and I don't want to overemphasize a history lesson here, but to lay a little bit of groundwork that is prevalent in all of these churches in Asia Minor, they were tremendously pagan regions. Smyrna was a coastal town that kind of like Ephesus had a lot of religious activity. It was a place of pilgrimages. It had temples to the goddess. It is supposedly the birthplace of Homer, the poet, whom some of you may have heard of. And they had uh, special shrines to him. They had theaters that seated 20,000 people. So it was supposed to be a place of great uh, a marketplace, great education, science, theater, art. It was a thriving hub. It had not only temples to imaginary gods created by men, but it had temples to men who imagined themselves to be gods. <laughs> the temple to Tiberius, a, a, a ruler of Rome. Temples to Caesar and to his mama. And so, so this is a place that if you were to go there, they would consider themselves thriving, abundant prospering, blessed, protected. They would have been those kinds of people who love their town, love their city, would be happy to go travel other places and say, I'm from Smyrna. And expect when people say, oh, I've always wanted to go there. Oh, tell us how it is to live in that town. It, it, it was that kind of place in the minds of people. But with their commitment to paganism, there was, like there was in Ephesus, an intense persecution against Christianity. When people are committed to their own cultural gods and their own cultural practices, and then people are coming in and saying, these are not gods. There's no salvation there. There's no, there's no hearing of prayer there. There's nothing there. It is empty. It is worthless. You have to turn from these things. To the true and living God. All of these things. All of the money that's been invested in these temples. All of the people traveling to, to participate in activities. It is all an utter waste of time. None of it matters. Only Christ matters. That's hard for people to hear. That nothing ultimately bears any significance or consequence. Other than Christ Jesus our Savior. There's no other name. There's no other hope. And into that, it's interesting, uh, Jesus speaks, and it says this, and he, there's always a, a statement of introduction. It says, the words of. The first one, it had said, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It was speaking of him having all the authority over all of those churches. Here it says, the first the words of him, uh, let's see, here it is, uh, verse 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I mean, those are strong words, isn't it? Uh, uh, we've looked at these things in the past. These are those book in statements. First and the last. They're the kind of things that declare this. Before all things, I was. When all things come to their end, 
I will be. Before all things were brought, I was, and I brought them into being for me. And when all is consummated and brought to its end, it will all be accomplished by and for me. When you say, I am the first and the last, that is essentially saying, it has all, from beginning to end, been brought about by me. It is everything, from beginning to end, for me. It's all about me. That's, that's a, just a powerful statement. I am the first and the last. Nothing else matters. Supreme. The, the scripture says concerning Christ that in all things he would have preeminence. And the scriptures state that and sometimes we, we you know, we, we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we get this? As those who claim Christians as our title and name, do, would people look upon us and by how we live and how we speak, would they accuse us of being Christians? Do we have to pronounce ourselves Christians or will they accuse us of being Christians? Because remember, the church at Antioch was the first church, the first place where they were called Christians. And it wasn't because they took that name on themselves. It was because they sought to live in a way that was pleasing to Christ. They sought to imitate the life that Christ had exemplified for them. They sought to, they always wanted to live in a way that reverenced and represented his glory and his name faithfully. And so it, it, it's, it's something that we've got to ask ourselves. It, it, would someone who sees us. Here's our conversation. Sees the decisions we make. Would they easily conclude that person is a follower of Christ? I've got another statement for you. There are, uh, everyone who's watching you and listening to your conversation, they can only watch what you do in public. They can only hear what you say with your mouth. There is another who's watching, who is the judge of the living and dead, the one before whom all motives, all secrets of the heart are laid bare. Would he look upon you and me and say, that person's heart, their life, their love, they're mine. You can see me in them. I am in them, they are in me, and it is evident I am at work in them. And I will continue to work and bring that work to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Do you, are you, do you know that he looks upon you and says, I am at work in you? Do you cry out to him and say, God, strengthen me more, help me more. I need you because I still stumble. I still make mistakes, but I'm yours. And I want to always represent you in a way that brings you glory. I never want to bring shame on your name. I don't want to, to simply be a Christian in name, in title, in religion, and not truly be 
one who from the heart wholly follows the Lord. We were looking at in Sunday school the occasion where um, you had the, tw the 12 spies that went into the land. And there's a statement woven in there concerning Caleb that he alone among those spies follow wholly followed the Lord with his heart. Wholly followed I read those words and, and it just makes me shrink back just a little bit. Holy followed. God help me. So this, this is sort of the, and then he goes on, not only the first and the last, but then it goes on to say, who died and came to life. Now that's significant because in uh, that particular uh, region in Smyrna, they did have a temple to a god or goddess called Dionysius and this goddess supposedly died and then came back all woven together in some mythical nature whereas Jesus himself is declaring he is truly the one who died and who came back to life not simply in ancient stories but in practical near time experiences in the experience of John himself in the early book of first John when John writes that book he, he says whom we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands and beheld his glory this is this is in stories we were there when he was crucified. We watched the spear thrust into his side and he bled out on our behalf. He was dead, buried, and sealed. And then we saw him risen from the dead. He came to our presence. We could touch the wounds in his hands. We could place our hand in his side. He sat with us. He spoke with us. He ate with us. He taught us, and then we saw him taken up into heaven. This is not stories. It's not myths. It's not ideals. Jesus really did these things. He lived, he died, and he lived again, which again promotes this idea. He has victory over the grave. He has victory over death. That one insurmountable thing. Every king who came along, and there were tremendous kings, kings in Assyria, kings in Babylon, kings such as David, the king of Israel, who would go throughout the world, battle, 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 victory, victory, victory. No one could seemingly defeat them. But you know what every single one of those mighty men succumbed to? Death. Death defeats the life of every man. But there is one who has victory over death and through whom we have victory over the grave. It loses its sting. It no longer inspires within us fear. And we will see more about that when we see the promised expectation towards the end of this chapter. So now we move from the place and the person to what I would call the past and present experience. Look what it says in verse 9. And this is a church, remember, that he has nothing negative to say about. They are living in a way that is pleasing in his sight. And he says this, I know your tribulation. This is their past and present experience. 
they are having trouble. They are having difficulty. And, and, and the degree, it, it's, it's quite good. And I love when, the way the scriptures are often uh, lay this kind of thing out for us. I know it. Sometimes I think we think that when we pray, we're letting God know what's going on. Uh, I heard it said one time that, that a man in a church prayer meeting was saying, God, you heard what happened in that uh, train wreck today. I'm sur sure you saw the paper this morning. No, God doesn't need to see the morning paper to know what happened. He doesn't have to watch the morning news to know what happened. He doesn't have to wait for our reports to know what happens. God not only sees all that's happening, but he knows all before it happens. He knows all of the details, all of those things that, that we don't know. Every single answer as investigations will go on. What was the initial cause of that fire? What was the initial cause of that those breaks going out and people try to reconstruct it and forensic examinations and all of those things. God needs no such things. His knowledge is so thorough, so complete. And he says, I know your tribulation, which means the hard time that they're going through. The heart of man and you can see it in the Psalms. And so it gives us some reassurance is almost to shout this. Do you see us? God, do you see how much we're suffering at the hands of these people? We're being faithful to you and they're afflicting us. And do you see how faithful we're being? Why aren't you here helping us? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow this to go on? The psalmist often cries out with that Lord, th those words, how long, O oh Lord, or why? Those things happen. And in the how long and the why, we can take strong comfort in this. The Lord says, I know. It's not, a, it's not that he's distracted and otherwise engaged. He knows. He knows thoroughly. He knows completely the tribulation and suffering. Now, for those who have studied church history, or even those who haven't, potentially you've heard of the martyrdom of Polycarp. If not, I encourage you to read up a little on the martyrdom of Polycarp. That is said to have taken place in Smyrna. This is a place where things were bad. Now, what's challenging to our minds is this. Sometimes we live in a world where the teaching comes to us and says like this. If you are faithful in all that you do, God's going to bless everything. You're not going to have problems in your family relationships. You're not going to have problems at work. You're not going to. Everything's going to be good. Really? Here the church, they are by testimony of Christ doing all things well. And yet, what is their present experience? And this blows the minds of people because they think if, if we do good God owes us good. And if we do bad, God owes us bad. And so we can see where we're at by what's going on. Th that's exactly how the pagans think. 
and to show his power to a degree that was wound up in the nature of the old covenant. You obey and I will bless you. You disobey and I will curse you. But we're not under that old covenant anymore. We're under a new covenant that is in Christ's blood. I just want to lay this out for just a moment. The new covenant is in Christ's blood. The initiation of this covenant, does it come through comfort and convenience or suffering, agony, and death? And so when we begin to think of this, uh, some people get really confused. I don't understand why I'm having all of these problems. I'm trying to live for God. I don't understand why everything in my life is like this. Have you met people like that? Have you from time to time had those thoughts within yourself? I don't know what I'm doing wrong that God isn't fixing all of this. Well, I just want to remind us, in spite of what some teachers and preachers might say today, promising you uh, such comfort and prosperity and peace in your life, the scriptures remind us and teach us things like this from the mouth of Christ in John 16. 33. In John 16, 33, as Jesus is speaking with his disciples, he says these words. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. All right, so how does, a, how does someone experience true peace? It is in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who were estranged and at enmity with God because of our sin have now been reconciled, redeemed, and brought near. We have peace with God, forgiveness through his blood. What a blessed reality. And that's the peace that endures and the only peace that ultimately matters. We have peace with Christ. We have peace in Christ. And there's also peace to know that whatever is going on, it can't destroy us. I mean, it's hard. I, I mean, I would think that our minds need to sometimes at this point stir up. We're probably aware where the scripture tells us Jesus and his disciples got into a boat to cross the sea. And as they began to cross the sea, the storm wept up. The wind is blowing hard. The boat is getting filled. And Jesus is sleeping. It is down in the boat, snoozing peacefully. And the disciples come and they wake him up. Lord, Lord, we are perishing. And what did Jesus do? Woken out of his sleep to this tremendous storm, these frightened, screaming individuals, what does he do? Panic? No, that's what we do. <laughs> His response was one of perfect peace. The scriptures say, you keep him at perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Oh, Jesus stands up, peace, goes to the boat and says, rebukes the wind and the rain and there is perfect calm. But you realize that even before the storm calmed, Christ himself was already calm in the midst of the storm. While there was no peace on the sea, Christ was entirely at peace. My life 
is in the hands of my Father. None can take me before I, my time. None can end his purposes regarding me. I'm safe in the hands of my God. Jesus says, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Now that is a statement of the future. You could call that a prophecy. Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. And here is a prophecy. In the world, you will have tribulation. That was a, a, a personal prophecy. Wait a second. I wanted to know about how I would succeed. I wanted to know about how, you know, I would do, my business would be, do well. I would get a raise. Uh, how, you know, I would overcome this cancer. I, wa I wanted to hear about victories. You're prophesying to me that in this world I will have tribulation? Yes. And it's good to know that when you hear those words of Christ and, and, and you, and, 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 that was personal to them and has pertinent application to us, I face tribulation and struggles and trials in this world. And you know what I can say? Once again, Christ is true to his word. In this world, I will have tribulations. And so can I praise his faithfulness in the midst of tribulation? I must. He goes on to say, but take heart or be of good cheer. Be courageous. Why? I have overcome the world. The world's not in, you have tribulation in the world, but the world's not in control. I'm in control. <laughs> I've proven my superiority to it. I've proven my lordship over it. Be of good courage. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. See, the world's definition of peace is no problems. Christ promises peace that prevails in the midst of problems. A peace that perseveres and goes beyond this life because it's a peace with God in Christ. Even, it, you know, we, we think of those days, many others in church history, when Athanasius was fighting for the, the, the deity of Christ. And, and fighting, he wrote this, this piece of literature that was called Athanasius Contra Mundum. Athanasius against the world. Even if it's me against the world, I will not relent. Because, but we note this. Even if it is the whole world, if God is with us, what does it matter? Kind of like the children of Israel. When they looked at the giants in the land, Caleb could confidently say, they are bread for us. Others would say, we're like grasshoppers to them. No, they're bread for us. And generally speaking, when I come up against a loaf of bread, you know, to do battle, I'm going to be victorious. You know, the bread really isn't you know, going to have much fight against it. I'm going to devour it, and it's going to remain docile, immobile, and hopeless well, I take what I want, as I want, when I want. Now, that, of course, was the, the confidence 
of uh, Caleb as to the power that God could give them and the weakness that God could give to the enemy. And we can have this confidence, no matter how much the storms of this world, no matter how much the people of this world might rise up against us, might threaten us, we can be confident of this. If God desires to deliver us, He will deliver us. If He desires to preserve us, He will preserve us. God is in control doesn't matter how many turn, how many come. In uh, John chapter 15, Jesus says it this way to his disciples in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Basically, he's saying this, here is the world. I chose you out of the world. So you don't belong to the world. So they're going to hate you. Because you're mine and not the world's. And then he speaks of his own experience again. Therefore, the world hates you. Verse 20, remember that I told you, said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, did they persecute Jesus? Did they mock him? Did they accuse him of being evil and serving demons? Did they accuse him of blasphemy? Did they accuse him of being a liar? <laughs> Did they beat him, whip him, spit upon him, and kill him? Wow. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also i remember someone once telling me that or hearing someone once say that someone once told them to pray for persecution <laughs> what i'm going to urge you is this you don't need to pray for persecution it's coming it's coming for sure jesus has made that abundantly clear it, 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 Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 and following, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You don't need to pray for persecution. You need to pray for the strength to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. <laughs> but doing so is going to bring a degree of persecution. The scriptures are so abundantly clear in all of these things. It could go so far as to say, in, in Acts chapter uh, 14, verse 22. Acts chapter 14 is just coming on the hinges of uh, Paul in Lystra was stoned. Then he went on to Derby and preached the gospel. Then back to Lystra. He went back to the stoning place. And then on to Iconium and a number of these other places. And it tells us in chapter 14 of Acts, verse 22, he and Barnabas, they went through strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They encouraged and strengthened them, not by saying, you won't have any problems. They encouraged and strengthened them by telling them, you will have lots of problems. And problems are part of the plan. 
And they're part of the plan to purify you for his purposes. To wean you from worldliness. Wean you from uh, uh, valuing the things that the world values. Sometimes you, you, think, you think of these kinds of things uh, with young people or with old people. You know, uh, uh, Take a young person and say, you know, what, interviews are often done like this. Where do you hope to be in five years? Where do you hope to be in 10 years? Where do you see yourself in five years? And sometimes I wonder if we were to ask that question to some, an unbeliever from one university and to a believer from another university. Would their answers be all that different? Or do they kind of seem to be both wanting towards, committed to, working for the same things? Now, practically, whatever career path we're going to be on, we want to be successful and we want to achieve. But the, our first thoughts when those questions, what is it that you hope to accomplish? Where, what is it that you hope to achieve? What do you hope to lay hold of in life? Our first thoughts ought to be, I want to be more godly. I want to, I want to find increasing ways to serve the Lord. I want to be used of God to bring the gospel to those around me. I want to see souls saved. I want to see saints strengthened. Uh, you know, I want to be used of God. And I want that it, it, my training would be put to use. My education will be put to use. And that I would be a faithful witness and a hard worker for his glory in the place that God puts me. That I would be a testimony of earnestness and diligence and integrity. That all might know the effects of Christ. Or is it, I want this level of a success so I can have this form of house that I might drive this type of vehicle. Is there a difference? God knows. Romans 5 would go so far as to say in verse 3 to 5, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, that's a strange statement, isn't it? We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, it's not for suffering's sake. It isn't that something goes bad and it's like, yippee, yeah, crashed again. Oh, no. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope we know that everything that happens to us has a godly design and a godly purpose and so it's not the suffering alone that we rejoice in suffering we rejoice because we know that suffering is one of those sweet gifts to the saints to sanctify us to be more like Christ. And I know that's a strange sentence, but chew on it a little bit. Moving on, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Now, this is, this is a big problem because uh, in, in a town like this, in this age, we don't face that a lot in our own experiences. It, it sometimes happens in, in India where we were for many years where someone would be a, a, a son in a family 
and he would be educated and it would be expected that he would move into his father's company, into his father's business, and he would share in that wealth and share in that success. But then when that young man comes to Christ, commits himself to Christ in faith, follows him in the obedience of baptism that often results in Indian families in, you are no longer my son. You are no longer a member of this family. You have no inheritance. You are not welcome here. We don't want to see your face again. So here is a guy who had guaranteed prosperity. And now what's he going to do? Well, I have lots of contacts because my dad is well connected. But he goes to those contacts and what do they do? No, your dad puts you out because you've turned against your family. You've turned against your community. You've turned against your country. No, we're not hiring you either. That's the kind of things that would be faced. Oh, don't go to that shop. That shop's owned by a Christian. Don't buy from them. They're Christians. Don't hire him. And so, so then you begin to face all kinds of problems, and these people would be all of my opportunities, the doors seem to be closed. And as a result of that, the only things that we can get are the small and simple things that we end up poor by worldly circumstances. Now, that's not how we, most of us are going to experience life, but that's how it was among them. But I love the way that it's stated here in this passage. It says, I know your poverty, but then it says, but you are rich. Now, when you, when you hear that statement, it should sound a little confusing. So are they poor or are they rich? I don't understand. Well, we're going to also see a couple uh, churches later, a church that is wealthy, but is told they're poor. <laughs> Here they are poor in a worldly sense, but they are rich. James 2, when dealing with a church that is having, uh, treating the rich who visit them well and treating the poor who visit them poorly, <laughs> it says this, James 2 verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? All right. So what, these people in this church, they are poor in the world, in Smyrna, but they are rich in faith. Now here's a real test for our hearts. If you got to choose between rich in faith and rich in this world, which one would you prioritize? If it was either or, is to be rich in faith more valuable to you? than to be rich in this world. And those who have both and are rich in this world and rich in faith are told that they are to be generous. And they are actually to give themselves, it says in Timothy, to good works, thus storing up for themselves a treasure in heaven because that money gets you nowhere in the kingdom of God. You store up for yourself a treasure of a sure foundation for the future by your love and service, not by your money. That doesn't impress God. The, the, the disciples, uh, 
Paul particularly says of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he speaks of his, his endurance, his hardships, his calamities. He goes on in chapter 6 verse 10 of 2 Corinthians to say this. And again, it all sounds like peculiar opposites. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. What are you, lost your mind? Someone might say to Paul, much learning has made you mad. And he would say, I am a madman for the cause of Christ. Indeed, yes, Paul would travel around and he would often be poor, but he understood that as he declared and displayed the treasure of Christ, and as God poured out his spirit in mercy, granting faith to a multitude of people, they were becoming rich in faith from a man who held nothing of worldly value in his hands. He was poor yet making many rich. And he can state it with powerful hyperbole as having nothing yet possessing everything. Not just a lot. I have it, nothing more is needed. Nothing more is wanted. I effectively have everything. I mean, there was a book written some time back of which the title is very useful. I can't corroborate every word in the book. But it said simply like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Absolutely everything. So that I could say, I don't need anything else. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. Goes on to, uh, let's go on and see, I want to see to the next part as time is running on us. I know the slander of false Jews. It says this in, in verse 9, I know those the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Boy, that's, a, that's strong language, isn't it? A synagogue of Satan. Now, they would differ from that. How dare you call us that? We get together every Sabbath to read the law. We read the word of God. We are zealous for God. And the scripture declares them, no, they are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus kind of be, uh, expresses this and, and makes the idea somewhat clear to us in John chapter 8. As Jesus is speaking to a group of people in John chapter 8 verse 44, he says this to them. You, this is a group of Jews who are not really trusting and embracing him and all that he says as he's told them god will set them free from their slavery and they said what do you mean slaves we've never been slaves all right please please study the history of israel it's a history of cyclical slavery over and over again what do you mean you've never been slaves christ uh, if you know the son he will set you free and you will be free indeed and he's telling them this glorious truth about spiritual freedom that we have in christ and, and and they argue with him and he says you are verse 44 of your father the devil now they as jews say no 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 our father is god 
He, that is our religion. That is our faith. Our father is God, and our father is Abraham. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Your father's the devil. You know how you, you know how you know your father's the devil? Because of what you do. He's a liar and a murderer, and that's what you are, a liar and a murderer. He was committed in his own heart and mind to what is false, and you are committed in your heart and mind to what is false. We, we see the same thing over in, in 1 John chapter 3 where it says, this is how you know the children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God are those who practice righteousness, and the children of the devil are those who practice unrighteousness. So here they are facing this, this onslaught, this attack from these people who are serving the devil. But it says this, I know that those who that they are say that they are Jews and are not. That's a very peculiar statement. What do you mean they say that they are Jews and are not? Many of them would probably be able to break out their lineage. Let me tell you. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and go, and go through the whole story of it and, and link their way back to Judah or back to Issachar. Or, you know, somehow they're going to link it back. But the scripture will simply declare because of their attitudes and their actions. No, no, no. You want to you you link your lineage back? It has nothing to do with mama and papa and grandmama. It links back to the devil. And further, it really, it ties into what I, let me read out of Romans chapter 2 for you. Romans chapter 2, Paul explains this idea of those who are, who are true Jews and those who are Jews only in an earthly heritage. It says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Now, you would, have a tr you would have a problem proving that by DNA. Wait a second, someone is a Jew because they're a Jew. I mean, they have that hereditary, they have that heritage. No, it's not a physical thing. Neither is circumcision outward or physical. Now, many people would beg to differ. The children of Israel who were coming out and, and, and had to uh, receive circumcision would strongly differ with whether or not it was outward and physical. They would say it is outward and it's physical and it's painful. But the scriptures are saying, no, no, no. That was one historic element of it, but that's not the heart of it in the purposes of God. Please see this. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit and not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Those of us who have been reading through the book of Isaiah, it says of, of Rahab that regarding Zion, it will be said of her, this one was born here. All right, Rahab was not a Jew, but of Zion, it will say this one was born there. I don't understand. Good. 
mean, generally speaking, all those things that lead us to not understand humble us and get us to ask that question, what is being said? What is going on? Romans chapter 4 explains it to us of even how Abraham received the sign of circumcision after he had believed. It says in the middle of verse 11, the purpose was to make him of the, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So Abraham is the father, not of all those who bear a fleshly connection to him, but all of those who have the same faith in them that he had in him. The connection to Abraham is a connection of faith. The connection of flesh doesn't get you anywhere. The connection of faith is what brings you, and, and so, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith. So regardless, anybody's real authentic connection to Abraham, anybody's authentic connection to those who would be construed Jews from a New Testament point of view, the connection is by faith. The promises are, are to the children of the promise. Those who share the faith of Abraham, those who are united to Christ by faith. So these were a synagogue of Satan. Now again, uh, I'm going to go a little more quickly because we've already laid the groundwork. We, we go from the past and present experience to the prophesied expectation. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. What is their present circumstances? Tribulation. Now what is he saying? Going to get worse. It's bad. I know it's bad. But you have no idea how bad it's going to get. And he goes on to explain how bad it's going to get to them. He said, first he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So as it gets worse, continue to remember, God is in control. This is God's plan. He has a purpose in this. And, and what's going to happen? Do not fear. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. The devil himself... Is he going to manifest with a pitchfork and everything? Not necessarily. The devil will be at work in the synagogue of Satan. <laughs> the devil be, will be at work in his, in his kids. Remember, it was even Judas that it said the devil had already entered his heart when he betrayed Jesus. The devil will use willing and wicked instruments of men. And it says that they will be imprisoned for. 10 days now whether that is as some say uh, uh, don't take that literally it just means a short time whether it's 10 days or whether it's a short time the whole point is it's going to get worse now the idea if someone says it's going to get worse for 10 days it'd be like whatever 10 days I'm good I'll get through it but this isn't necessarily 10 days you're good you'll get through it is you will be uh, tested thrown in prison for 10 days, you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death. Wait a second. It's been bad. It's been tribulation. Now you're saying it's going to get worse. And as it gets worse, we're going to be put in prison and not only in prison for a short time, but the, it's not. And afterwards you come out victorious, but it's actually you die. You might think some people at this point would say, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for life and life more abundantly. 
<laughs> you know, life more abundant and free, not imprisonment, <laughs> not, not suffering, not agony. Well, I'll tell you, the life of a saint in suffering and in struggle is more abundant and free than the world will ever know. And when they, when they persecute them and they bring them ultimately to death. Now, what's important for us to remember is this. Well, I don't know why God would do that. Some people have said God would never allow that to happen. These are his saints. These are his beloved children. This is a faithful church. God would never allow his beloved children, his faithful church, who he loves so much, to suffer and then to die at the hands of wicked men. Uh, you mean like he did with his beloved son? Who suffered and died at the hands of wicked men. Are you sure God wouldn't allow that? God did allow that. And God will allow that. But it's important for us to note. Wonderful and encouraging things like this. Some of you may die. And that is true. But remember. For the saint. We have victory over the grave. Jesus is the one who died. And is now alive. So that's why the scripture says, Paul says in Philippians 1.23, I am hard pressed between the two. I don't know whether I want to stay alive and continue serving or whether I want to die. And he says in verse chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with the Lord, which is far better. So you realize, when they bring you into prison and you suffer uh, tribulation unto death, what they have delivered you to is far better. It's an even greater victory than if you come out of the prison. Because think about it. You come out of this prison, of this flesh, with its weakness, with its stumbling, with its temptation, with its irritation, its frustration, its all of the weaknesses that we continue to bear, gone, delivered into his presence. So much so that uh, one of the things is he says, they will deliver you unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Wait a second. Death and I will give you the crown of life. How are you, why are you giving the crown of life? They just died. Yeah, they only died physically. They are receiving that crown of life. That is victorious. The, the, the idea of giving a crown is success, victory. It was a laurel, a wreath. You have reached the finish line and you have won. And the crown of life means now life unending, life unbounded. Life eternal, so much so that the second death will have no effect on you. Because the scripture tells us that. It is appointed for man in his flesh once to die, and after that the judgment. But for all who are apart from Christ, those who have died once and then face judgment, now face what? Tells us in Revelation chapter 20, they will now face the second death. Where they're delivered to the lake of fire. Apart from the presence of the blessedness. And privilege. And honor. 
and riches of our Lord forever. Which is why that's the promised end. And so we're not worried about clinging to this life. I, I, when in First Thessalonians, Timothy, it says this. That those who are to be generous and rich, they do so. It says in First Timothy verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 19. The rich are generous, storing a good foundation for a future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This isn't truly life. Right now, we're exiles. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're waiting for our inheritance. We're waiting to enter our promised land, which is a far more blessed and permanent promised land than those children of Israel ever sought to inherit. Won't be hurt by the second death. So in this, we've, we saw the place and the person exposed Christ in his great power, Smyrna, in their circumstances and, and uh, weaknesses and suffering and affliction. We saw the past experiences, great tribulation. We saw the prophesied expectation. It gets worse and many will die, but we see the promised end, life, life eternal, victory, blessed inheritance in Christ. Let's pray. Prepare.